I just love that song we just sang because that's the desire of my heart this morning that the Word of God will speak to us, that it's not me, but yet it's God. Let's pray. Father, speak to us. Father, we ask that your Spirit would move in our hearts this morning, that you would pour down like rain in our hearts because we need you to teach us. We need you to lead us and guide us in our walk with you. Thank you, Father, for what you will do today. In Jesus' name, amen. My mom used to be a bank teller. In fact, it was so long ago, it was the first national bank of Strasbourg. So that goes back a few years. But then the first national bank of Strasbourg merged and it became the bank of Lancaster County. And she was a bank teller for many years. And every once in a while, they would have these training sessions. And in these training sessions, they were taught how to find counterfeit bills. And you know what they did the whole time during those training sessions? They would look at the real bills. They would spend their time looking at the real money and looking for all the different nuances and the bills and so they were to know what a real bill looked like front, back, side, all over. So that if they encountered a counterfeit, they'd be able to spot it. Well, I think that same principle applies to Peter's letter here in 2 Peter chapter 2. And Peter talks in chapter 1 about, hey, God's Spirit has led us in writing the Bible. God's Spirit has led us to put together what we have as the Bible. And Peter says, you know, I was with Jesus. I experienced a lot of the same things that Jesus experienced. I saw him do miracles. And as he pointed out in chapter 1, he says, I was there on the Mount of Transfiguration. I heard the voice of God. So you know that what I am telling you is absolutely true. And as he states those principles that what he says is true, he comes to chapter 2 now, and he says, but there are also false prophets among the people, just as there are false teachers among you. See, Peter is saying that, you know, the standard that we have is the Word of God. In fact, if you want to know if what I am telling you is true, you can fact-check me with the Word of God, because that is our standard. That is what we measure our truth by. Acts 17.11 says this, 
that it was the Bereans received the message with great eagerness. But notice what they did. It says they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. So if they're checking the scriptures to see if what Paul said was true, you better check the scriptures to see if what I am telling you is true. Because that's your responsibility. When you stand before God and you say, well, yeah, this is what I believed, and God says, well, why did you believe that? And you say, well, that's what Pastor Steve said, or that's what Pastor Jesse said. That's not going to wash because you're the one standing before God. Dusty and I could be there with you saying, oh, yeah, well, that's, yeah, no. What do you believe? Because that is on you. Examine the scriptures. Back in June, Dr. Bob Gerhardt spoke in Sunday school. He spoke on holding fast to that which is true. And for five weeks, he explained how culture today is redefining what is true. In fact, you can just make up your own truth. Well, according to the scriptures, what we believe is true, we can't do that because there is a standard for everybody. By the way, um, all of Dr. Gerhardt's Sunday School lessons are on our YouTube channel. So you can get on our YouTube channel and you can watch his lessons over again or you can send them to, you know, send the link to your friends and they too can watch his lessons. They are excellent. And by the way, Dr. Gerhardt will be here the last Sunday in August, um, coming up, what, three weeks or two weeks? Three weeks, I guess it is, that he will be here. He will be in Sunday school so if you have questions from his Sunday school lessons, you can come, and he's going to talk about that, and then he'll also be preaching um, August 29. So you need to be here for Dr. Gerhardt. So Peter says, folks, there are false teachers among you. And look what Peter says they're going to do. He says that they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Peter says, this is going to be done deceptively. You need to be aware how they work. He says, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who brought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. How many of you have heard people say that, well, if I'm good enough, I'll get to heaven? You ever heard people say that? You know, if I do more good things than bad things, you know, I'll, I'm going to go to heaven. You talk about denying Jesus? Because Jesus says, no, that's not the way you get to heaven. He told his disciples, I am the way the truth, and the life. You see how easily people deny the sovereign Lord? Well, if I'm good enough, I'll, I'll, I'll get to heaven. Not at all. That's why we hold that the Bible is 
100% true because of Jesus, because of what he said and because of what he did. We hold on to the fact that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant word of God. And that is how we test everything. Peter goes on in, chat, in verse 2. Many will follow their shameful ways and bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lies of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them that day after day was tormented in his righteous soul for the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and, hold, and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. Peter's like, Guys, you got to understand this, man. This is, this is what's going to happen to those who are teaching falsely, to those that are leading others astray. There is going to be judgment. And he, and he, he uses the, the illustration of angels. And I thought this was quite fascinating because when I was thinking about this, and in fact, I asked my wife, I said, ah, this is what I'm thinking, is this right? And as we researched it, yeah. The angels were the first of God's creations. He created them first, before he created the world. He created these angels to be with him, to, to worship him, and to do his will. So I'm thinking these angels had a pretty special place in God's heart, because he created them to be with him, to do his will. But yet, as we know, a number of angels followed Lucifer, and they sinned. And so Peter says, look, if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, Peter says, he's going to do the same for those who are leading others astray. False teachers will be judged strictly. In fact, in the book of James, it says this, James 3.1. says, not many of you should presume to be teachers because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. These people have been found by God to be guilty, guilty of false teaching. 
He says, and they will be judged firmly. Now you're thinking, well, it hasn't happened yet. I mean, what's God waiting for? Oh, don't worry. Just because it hasn't happened yet, it will happen. Because we believe the Bible is true. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, look, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. He said, we are trying to teach what the Bible says. We're not making up stories. We're not trying to stretch what the Bible is saying. This is what the Bible says. Because judgment will come on those who teach false doctrines. Ephesians chapter 6 says this, put on the full armor of God because our struggle is with the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. Because Lucifer sinned and took a third of the angels with him, according to Revelation, he is out to take as many people with him as he can. Because he has that vendetta against God. Because Lucifer wanted to be God. And God said no. And so he is going to attack the thing that God loves most. And what is the thing that God loves most? Us. That's why they're coming after us. That's why there are false teachers in the church. So we are deceived from the truth. And Peter is like, you need to be aware of this. Let's skip down to uh, verse 10. Well, look, before we get to verse 10, let me, let me back up and say, um, in Peter's section here, he was writing that the false prophets, the false teachers, those who are teaching uh, false, uh, false doctrines, he said, they're going to be judged, but... But God is not only a God of judgment, God is also a rescuer. Because look at Moses, or Noah as an example. Look at Lot as an example. Yeah, God brought swift judgment, but God is also a God who rescues those who are righteous, who follow after him. As I was thinking through this passage this week, there was a guy that came to my mind. His name is Jim Jones. Now, probably us older folks can remember Jim Jones because we saw it on TV. If you don't know who Jim Jones is, Google it, and you will find out about him, who led hundreds and hundreds of people 
away from following the truth in the Bible. How easy some people just left what was true in the Bible to follow somebody. And then we get under verse 13. 2 Peter 2, verse 13, it says, They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, revealing in their, uh, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. As I was looking at that this week, while they feast with you, I had to go back to some of the commentaries that I was reading and found out that what Peter was saying here in the Greek was while they were enjoying the love feast with you. The idea that Peter was saying is that these people are having communion with you. They are there at your love feast. They are there having communion. And I thought, how appropriate for today we are having communion. He said, these false teachers are there in your church, even partaking in communion with you. Be careful with what they are teaching. Down to verse 17, it says, these men are springs without water, and misdriven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them, for they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. Folks, he said, be so careful, because what they say is appealing, what they say feeds your inner desires. Oh, that sounds so good. Be very careful because they use deceptive, deceptive ways to try to entice you to follow them. One of the things that I think we need to talk about is so what are some of the false doctrines that are out there today? What are some of the false things that people are getting caught up in as they sit in church, as they hear some teachings? Well, I found a book by Erwin Lutzer. It says, The Church in Babylon, it's titled, The Church in Babylon Heeding the Call to Be a Light in Darkness. And he gives a number of false doctrines, false teachings that is prevalent in churches today. I'm going to just mention a couple. Um, the, number one is the gospel of permissive grace. He writes this, many people have been rescued out of sterile, joyless, performance-based Christianity when they learn that we are not only saved by grace, but we are also daily renewed and accepted by grace. They have been delivered from a life of rules without relationship and outward compliance without joyful obedience. 
Grace, once understood, is truly amazing, not just for sinners, but also for struggling saints. But today, we are witnessing a perversion of grace in what we can call the grace movement. Many preachers say that God loves you unconditionally and God loves you just as you are with unconditional love being interpreted as unconditional acceptance of one's lifestyle and choices. Boy, if that isn't true. In fact, I heard a pastor say that we are all God's children. No, we're not. Yes, we are all made in the image of God, absolutely, because the Bible says that. But also the Bible says in John 1.12 that if we receive Christ as our Savior, then we become a child of God. We're not all God's children. Only those who have trusted Christ as their Savior are God's children. But you will hear that. You will hear people say, we are all God's children. I wish it was true, but it's not. We are only God's child when we trust Christ as our Savior. Number two. Scott, I'm skipping to number two, buddy. The gospel of social justice. Irwin writes this. In the early 20th century, many churches left off preaching the cross of Christ and replaced it with doing good to their fellow man. They justified their stance with verses from the Old Testament, such as bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause, and similar texts in the New Testament where Jesus taught that when we visit his followers in prison, we are visiting him. Social concerns replaced the finished work of Christ who died and rose again to save sinners. And the gospel of God saving us from sin was almost entirely neglected. In reaction, fundamentalists rejected the social gospel for the most part and confined themselves to the urgent need for individual conversion, neglecting the social implications of the gospel. We are commanded to live radically like Christ committing ourselves to the needs of others, body, soul, and spirit. But we must serve with a redemptive mindset, always seeking for opportunities to build bridges that will lead them to eternal life. At a former church where I was on staff, we had a community meal on the fourth Sunday of every month. And we would invite the community to come in and get a free meal. And it was usually pretty good. Um, I always went. Free food? I'm there, man. So we would have this community meal, and 20 to 30 people from the community would come who you know needed a good meal. And it was awesome. But you know what? That was all that happened. Did we talk about Jesus? 
Did we invite them to church? Did we even state why we were doing this meal? Not at all. Not until I decided we are missing the opportunity. So I kind of took over community meals because I was there every fourth Sunday night. Not only for the food, mind you. It was the dessert. <laughs> no, I'm only kidding. Um, it was because we had all these people in our church fellowship hall. We had them. They came for the meal. And it was like, let's talk about Jesus. And I would say, folks, you know what? We are so glad you're here. Because you know what? We love Jesus, and we love you. And we want to show you the love of Jesus by serving this meal for you. And by the way, you can come and join us for Sunday school and church. And I would take the opportunity to go around and talk with people and get to know their names and say, hey, why'd you come tonight? It was usually for the food. Some was for the fellowship, just to be with other people. But it was an opportunity to share about Jesus. That's what we need to do. Yeah, meet people's need where they are, but also share about Jesus. Number three, the gospel of new age spirituality. Many younger evangelicals, notice he says evangelicals here, many younger evangelicals do not feel at home in church. They are a seeking generation and uncomfortable with being told what to believe, but are committed to finding a faith that is right for them. Boy, that is so true. Because this, this younger generation, you know, they don't want the standard, this is the truth, and you need to adjust your lifestyle, you need to adjust your beliefs to this standard of truth. Now, they want to pick and choose. Yeah, I kind of want to believe this. I, I kind of want to believe that. I... Blaise Pascal. This is a philosopher, a French philosopher from back in the 1700s. He said this. He says, people almost invariably arrive at their beliefs not on the basis of proof, but on what they find attractive. Hey, I kind of like this. I'll, I'll, I'll believe this. No? Is it true? The fourth we're going to take a look at, which I found to be pretty interesting. So the gospel of interfaith dialogue. Urban writes this, our culture has chosen to submit to Islam. And there's pressure on the church to follow suit. Let me say from the outset that I am not opposed to those who engage Muslims in conversations about the difference between the two religions outside the setting of the pulpit. I have enjoyed such exchanges. Becoming friends with Muslims is a privilege given to us by the Lord. I am opposed to arguing, trying to prove who was right, and expressing words of condemnation. We should not attempt to win an argument, but to win trust and show respect and caring. 
In fact, I've heard testimonies from Muslims who converted to Christianity, and all of these stories had the same theme, unexpected love and caring from Christians. However, under the guise of tolerance, love, and some would even say evangelism, Muslims are being invited into churches to present a special revised version of Islam. Irwin goes on to say, we cannot allow that to happen. Just a few years ago, I heard of a denomination that at their annual conference even prayed to Allah as their way of reaching out to their Muslim friends. This was a Protestant denomination. I added two more. One is what I call the prosperity gospel. God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. And if you're not healthy and wealthy, you are living wrong. But if you will send me $20, I will send you a tape. And you can find out how to be healthy and wealthy. So just write to me, Jesse Johnson, at... Yeah. We hear that a lot today on television, don't we? If you look at Jesus' disciples, how many of them were healthy and wealthy? There is a cost to following Jesus. And it's not always health and wealth. Then there is the, the name it and claim it theology, where if you only pray in faith and you claim it and you say all these promises that God will grant you this, that you will get it. But what if it doesn't happen? Well, you don't have enough faith. You're not praying the right way. You know, sometimes God says no, doesn't he? I'm reading a book by Mark Lowry. It's called Live Long and die laughing. And in his book, he was talking about a singer, the Goodmans, and Vestal Goodman, that they were at an outdoor concert, and it started to rain. And Vestal said, stop, we got we to gotta, we gotta pray that the rain will cease. And so Mark writes, and Vestal prayed as only Vestal could, invoking all these promises of God. And he says, and five minutes later, the heavens opened and it poured rain. In fact, it poured rain, Mark says, that that little stream on the edge of the park became a raging river. And he says, people had to get their chairs up out of the mud, and they all were seeking higher ground, and some left, and Vestal stood there and said, well, I guess God said no. Because there are times that God does say no. Besides, what we want when we pray as Christians, it's not our will but that God's will 
will be done. So when it comes to the, the name it and claim it, <laughs> need to make sure that we're naming and claiming God's will and not our will. So far, Peter, in his second letter to his Christian friends in Asia Minor, said, folks, God has given you everything you need to live a godly life. You have the power of God within you. And because you have the power of God within you, add these qualities of goodness and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and kindness and love so that everybody can see that you are different. Peter says, and I write this, and I know it's true because of Jesus, because of what he said and of what he did by dying on the cross and coming back to life. Then he says, folks, beware of false teachers. They're going to happen. They're going to be in your church, even having communion with you. Beware of them. Beware of but, you know, Peter starts off on a high note. God has given us everything we need. And he says, but be careful. Next week, we're going to end on a high note. Chapter 3. You need to be here because it is exciting. It is absolutely exhilarating. Second Peter chapter 3. Tim Chalice is a pastor at Grace Fellowship Church in Toronto, Canada. And he said this, Satan's greatest ambassadors are not pimps, politicians, or power brokers, but pastors. Pastors that peddle a different religion. They peddle a deadly perversion of the true one. His troops do not make a full-out full frontal assault, but work as agents sneaking into the opposing army. Satan's tactics are studied, clever, predictable, effective. Therefore, we must always remain vigilant. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Let's pray. Lord, make us vigilant. Lord, make us to stand firm on the truth. And no matter how much the culture puts pressure on us, no matter how much different thoughts try to move us off the firm foundation of the Word of God, God, help us to stand firm. Help us to know the truth. Lord, we want to serve you and serve you well 
So, Father, keep us. Keep us continually growing in our understanding of what the Bible says. Lord, we thank you for your word that helps us to know what is true. Thank you for that standard that you have given to us. So we absolutely know without a shadow of a doubt what is true. God, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.